Welcome, welcome to Scholar Tea. I am Cameron, and I am sitting here with Shauna Patterson Stevens, and we are here to welcome you to Scholar Tea. We want to start off by just explaining kind of what are we doing here, right? So in E. Patrick Johnson's book, Sweet Tea, Black Gay Men of the South, the author described tea as a popular beverage, but also as a black gay vernacular that means gossip. The tea has been co-opted, borrowed, and adapted into popular mainstream through our wonderful black women and their black gay accessories. While I am not an accessory to Shauna, we call this show The Scholar Tea for a play on words, and more importantly, to have a space for higher education professionals to find some fun, engage in current events and issues and messiness of the times we are living in. Messy. Think of the read meets the friend zone meets Super Soul Sunday meets Black Girl Magic and Black Boy Joy of higher ed with some sprinkles of ratchetness. <laughs> now, Scholar Tea is a delightful mashup of humor, tips, and special guest interviews. The purpose of our podcast is to shine a light on underrepresented folks in the academy. The post-secondary sector can take its toll on the emotional and spiritual well-being of minoritized individuals. And sometimes we've seen the negative implications of these mental games playing out in our relationships with one another. So we aim to replace spite and envy with love and collegiality. Come through love. Love. Rather than unhealthy rates of competition and stress, we hope to espouse support and authentic relationships with one another. And although the field of higher education is expanse, our communities are small in comparison. And so I believe that uh, Oprah was really, really smart in saying that once you know better, you do better. And so we're trying to do better here. And this is our approach to creating a productive, thoughtful space, utilizing a socially just critical lens. We plan to model multidimensionality where we balance our intellect with our cultural understandings of self. Where scholar is giving you the tea. So who are we, right? So I am, I'm not going to give you my whole government name, uh, but Cameron Beatty here, academic. I like to think a junior faculty member, junior scholar, trying to figure out this place called the Academy. Mm. And I'm Shauna uh, Patterson-Stevens, and I'm just trying to, you know, make the world a better place. I found that the Academy is the best fit for me. Uh, there's always a system everywhere, so there's always going to be problems and solutions wherever you go. And I've just found that my talents work best and best situated in higher ed. Come on, talents. Talents. So what are we going to be doing each week? Each week we want to come to you as our authentic selves um, with different segments to engage you and have a little bit of fun with. So each week we'll have a scholar of the week um, where we recognize and redefine what excellence means in the academy. We'll do a little bit of spilling the tea, um, and a portion of our show will focus on specifically letters that you might write in um, and, and situations that you're dealing with in your life, in your workplace. So please email us, scholart at gmail.com. Email. Um, conceptually, it's when kind of Oprah meets the strawberry letter. So you can be forthright with your entry to share kind of anonymous stuff. We're not going to call you out and name you. Come through with the pseudonyms <laughs> and the aliases. Um, ask us for advice, vent about your work situation, and share your success stories with us. Each week we'll also feature a kind of a scholar that we're going to interview and understand who they are outside of the academy by also drawing some awareness to the work that they're doing to transform and in some cases disrupt kind of what's currently happening in higher education. One of my favorites, um, each week we'll do What's Problematic Is, where Shauna will let me vent. <laughs> 
and call out everything that's trivial um, to issues of critical consciousness raising. Um, and then finally, I'm going to let Shauna, I give Shauna permission <laughs> for her, her joke of the week. Um, so I have to kind of play along with her and, and get her joke of the week. Mm-mm. So we welcome you along for the ride. And so let's go ahead and feature our scholars of the week for uh, this episode. And actually, we're focusing on four. Um, recently, ACPA was very, very diligent in acknowledging the work of four very excellent critical scholars, and so we want to recognize them here today. First, we have ACPA Emerging Scholar Tanisha B. Lane. Dr. Lane is an assistant professor of higher education and student affairs in the Department of Leadership, Counseling, Adult, Career, and Higher Education at the University of South Florida. She received her PhD in higher adult and lifelong education with a graduate certificate in urban education from Michigan State University. Dr. Lane has served in a number of administrative roles and settings, including residence life, multicultural engineering programs, TRIO programs, MSU's Neighborhood Initiative, Wayne County Community College District's Educational Affairs and Distance Learning, and the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Post-Secondary Education. Dr. Lane's research agenda broadly examines diversity, equity, and inclusion in post-secondary education. Her primary research strand investigates the experiences and outcomes of underrepresented groups in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Using qualitative methods, she has explored access and success for underserved students of color in STEM and STEM intervention programs. Most recently, Dr. Lane served as a PI on the National Black Doctoral Women's Study, BDWS, and furthermore, Dr. Lane's research and scholarship aims to advance inclusive, transformative policies and practices. You can find her on Twitter at Lane Tanisha with an O. <laughs> Shout out to Dr. Lane. T. Lane, Fire Lane. <laughs> All right. ACPA Emerging Scholar, Dr. Cameron C. Beatty. That's you. Who that? That's you, <laughs> Dr. Beatty. Uh, Dr. Beatty is a tenure-track assistant professor in the Higher Education Student Affairs Program at Salem State University. He will soon be taking his talents to the Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida. Your alma mater. That's right. <laughs> he completed his PhD at Iowa State University in the Higher Education Administration Program with a concentration in social justice in 2014. Dr. Beatty's research foci includes exploring the intersections of gender and race in leadership education, leadership development of students of color on historically white college campuses, and global leadership education for undergraduate students. His recent publications center on topics that include supporting undergraduate black women through sister circles, gains in leadership capacity for high achieving black men leaders, and supporting undergraduate men in leadership education through liberatory pedagogy. He is a scholar passionate about deconstructing systemic racism and hegemonic masculinity in post-secondary education environments. You can tweet Cameron at at Cameron Carl. Holla at me. With a C. Mm -hmm. ACPA senior scholar Dr. Ebony Zamani Gallagher. Dr. Zamani Gallagher is a professor of higher education, community college leadership in the Department of Education, Policy, Organization, and Leadership at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She is also director of the Office for Community College Research and Leadership. She holds a PhD in higher education administration with a specialization in community college leadership and educational evaluation from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. 
Her teaching, research, and consulting activities largely include psychosocial adjustment and transition of marginalized collegians, transfer, access policies, student development, and services at community colleges. Dr. Simani Gallagher is a 2017 Senior Scholar Awardee of the Council of the Study of Community Colleges. She is also an ACPA Diamond Honoree from 2017 and the Association for Study of Higher Education Council on Ethnic Participation, Mildred B. Garcia Senior Exemplary Scholarship Awardee. Dr. Zamani Gallagher served as the president of the Council for the Study of Community Colleges, an affiliate of the American Association of Community Colleges, and served as the director for research and scholarship for ACPA. Has all the receipts. All the receipts. <laughs> and you can tweet her at EMZ Gallagher. You can Google it if you don't know how to spell it. ACPA Emerging Professional Krista Porter. Dr. Krista J. Porter is an assistant professor of higher education administration at Kent State University. She received her PhD in counseling and student personnel services with a specialization in college student affairs administration and an interdisciplinary qualitative research study certificate from the University of Georgia in 2013. Her scholarship includes the development and trajectory of black women in post-secondary education, college student development, and critical qualitative inquiry and methods. Specifically, she explores identity development and one's articulation of identity, socialization processes, and success of black women entering into and pursuing higher education as students and faculty. Her service to the academy is guided by both a critical and co-constructive framework, and her praxis is grounded in black feminist thought, intersectionality, and critical theories. Prior to joining the academy at Kent and Michigan State University, she worked administratively in various student affairs functional areas at multiple institutional types. You can at her at CJPPhD. Congratulations to this year's awardees. Shout out to the black women. Mm-hmm. Our next segment, we want to talk about what's <laughs> happening in these academic streets. The streets are calling. <laughs> so let's spill some tea here. Um, so recently, there was a conversation um, on one of our wonderful Facebook groups um, about thinking about professional salutations and greetings and email. Mm. Someone asked the correct ways in which they should start to greet folks via email, indicating one cannot assume gender identity by name alone. The individual is situated in HR at their particular institution and asks for the individual writing the email to consider using titles. And so I thought some of those comments were really productive. Um, one person commented, when you say, quote, it didn't come off as rude, end quote, it comes across to me as incredibly unempathetic and unaware of why this person made the mistake she did. Another person wrote, I mean, I get their point. Like, let's stop gendering titles as we could be misgendering people by assuming. However, that response was not cool. It could have been much more appropriate. But then I also found some comments that were disturbing. This is just me. Nah, check her ass or speak to her supervisor. <laughs> Or someone said, maybe, uh, quote, air quotes, Mrs. reminded her she was a cat lady because I think the individual titled the or started the email with Mrs. Mm -hmm. And I I'm wondering, what does cat lady have to do with this? I think there was there's some ageism, mm -hmm. right? Just like a whole right? bunch. There's layers on layers, right? Mm -hmm. Not married. So, so right. it matters that this person's not married or there's assumptions that this person isn't married. 
because they asked to be referenced as doctor. Yeah. Yeah. She probably isn't married and is feeling some type of way for being called Mrs. You can either send a petty reply, which I'm almost wishing you could, or just take it as a lesson learned. She's salty. Uh, Yes, Ms. is often safe if you don't know their title and you're certain they self-identify as female. That said, she was still rude. Uh, What do you think about that? I don't, I mean, I mean I'm torn because uh-huh. I'm thinking like, okay, if I'm sending an email and I want to be formal, what assumptions am I about to make about someone, right? I'm about to make assumptions about gender. I'm about to make assumption about status as far as marital status. I'm out, I'm trying to probably look through the internet to see if this person does have a doctorate. Right. Um, in some ways, I feel like the doctorate then becomes not the default, but it kind of lets you off the hook, right? Like there's no gender associated with referencing someone as as doctor or reverend or your honor, right? <laughs> um, so I, I'm thinking about putting myself in this particular person's shoes. I don't ever refer to anyone as Mrs., especially if I don't know them, mm-hmm. right? I think that's that's rooted in a lot of assumption um, about marital status. So I try to refrain from doing that. I was trying. I was trying to think the last time I sent an email and used Mr. and Mrs. Or I mean, some people can use the MX now, right? If they really, really need to, yeah, gender their email, but yeah, th- we have first names, yeah, and maybe some people think that's rude. I use first names, but but I'm I'm I thinking like, why am I so comfortable using first names? And I think it is because I have a doctorate, mm. right? Like mm, if that's true, if I am if I am at a status, quote unquote, that might not be at the level of the person I'm referencing, mm. then yes, I can see how offering a title offers respect, right, in some people's mind so yes i am very comfortable with sure. with saying someone's first name but i'm also rooted in i know i'm coming from a place of privilege that's right with that. that's right that's right check me thank you and then also i think um, the problem i have with that is i think that although we don't want to play the game we understand there is a game to be played here oh, absolutely and if you're trying to get a job um, or if you're trying to reach out to someone you don't know um we, we're really skilled at finding out information about so-and-so's ex, so-and-so's new partner, so-and-so this, so-and-so that. But then when we want to write an email to someone that we don't know, we can't use Google. You know, like we Google everything else. You IMDB, everything else, but you can't take three extra seconds to figure out who this person is before you send them an email. Agree. <laughs> but I also think there's still assumptions that have to be made through sure, Google. That's right. They're how they identify or their pronouns they use. You're still making some assumptions. Yeah. But then going back to if you have to go there, if there's not like a bio readily available, then you can use MX. Um, yeah. I guess it's not really widely known or. it's not, I, I don't think it is. Mm. Y'all, there's this thing called MX. <laughs> please, please educate the people. <laughs> and if you really, really need to, you know, write out an email to someone and you're unclear, you can use that as a term. And I, I think it's a little more um, neutral and it. It, it leads you to allow space for that person to identify or not. If they but like, if I don't, I don't know. If I don't know you, I'm becoming a more conscious person, mm. and I'm doing a blind email. It's going to say, "Dear Shauna Patterson." Again, but going back to, I mean, because I'm also trying to root myself in the idea that yes, now I have a doctorate, so I'm a little more comfortable with people, right? Um, so thinking about what it was like to be a grad student in my master's program, yeah. trying to reach out to faculty. Yeah. Or, um, I don't know, the president of some sort of foundation. Um, thinking about that in, in that context. Um, so then you just use the title. To me, you use the title, right? So, mm-hmm. dear director, 
Shauna Patterson Stevens, mm-hmm. dear Professor Cameron. Ba- then I think a title is appropriate, right? Like so, getting away from even the the salutation, the salutations are rooted in gender. So mm-hmm. if we're trying to get away from that, then we just should not be using you them. You know what I do? I just start with greetings. Greetings! Exclamation point! Hey, I- sis! <laughs> Exclamation point! <laughs> Hello! Exclamation point! And when I say it, y'all, you get these. E- some of y'all are listening. You get these emails. How I'm saying it in my head is hello. Greetings. You know, that's what I do at the very beginning. And I just keep it moving. I don't even say the person's name yeah. when I'm really not sure, just to be honest. But I don't, that's know, I, don't I, I think I don't know if we need. I, don't, I think I think we got to get away from salutate. Like to me, they're rooted in respectability. They're rooted in respectability right. politics. When I think if that's what you are aiming to achieve, there's other ways to achieve that. But then can we also go to that other layer of the inferences folks were making? I know that we're all people at the end of the day, but um, these folks are colleagues, you know, openly talking about this in this way and what is perceivably, you know, a field related group. And they're very they're very free to say exactly what's on their mind, even though it's super biased, super wrong. That's the majority of those of any group on this on this Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> those group me's are a hot mess too. <laughs> mm. So what is what are we doing? You know? Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> Who's the we? Us as uh, just broadly, like what what are we actually doing? Because we say we're doing one thing, but then our actions demonstrate yeah. other. Right, those are spouses. Otherwise, values, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's ask the people what they think. Yes, please holler at us, scholart2018 at gmail.com, and let us know your thoughts on greetings, salutations, paying respect, gendering. Let's hear from you. So today, our special guest in the Scala Tea is Dr. D.L. Stewart, and we are so excited to have you here to drop some gems, let the people um, into kind of who you are, what you're about, how you kind of take care of yourself and and do that self-care work. So D.L., would you please let the people know who you are? Absolutely. So um, D.L. Stewart, my proper gender pronouns are, I give folks three different sets to choose from as they are comfortable with. Anything that's really nice. Of, that's system. really kind of because <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the cis folks um, and their comfort. So mm. oh. um, I use. <laughs> that's right. Let's real, start. Right? Let's start early. Let's do it now. Let's just go there. I need people to pick up what I'm putting down. Either um, he, him, or his. They, them, or their, or these, them, or their pronouns. Right, and so. Um, the they, them, there, and these, and there are um, non-binary pronouns that um, some trans folks use, and then the he and his obviously is a gendered one. So, but all of those things represent sort of who I am and where I am in my gender journey right now, and the the instability and fluidity and and dynamism um, of gender. So that's the first piece. Where am I in my professional life? Um, I'm a professor with tenure at Colorado State University, and in that role, um, I also serve as 
one of the coordinators for the Student Affairs and Higher Education Program um, at CSU. I love that y'all call it tri-coordinators, too. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that, yeah, that's the structure for this year. And um, I'm here at Colorado State. This is my first year out here in, in the mountains um, or near a mountain adjacent. Uh, out here in Colorado in the mountain time zone, which is weird. It's the time zone that time forgot because mm. no one pays any attention to mountain time zone. <laughs> but um, yeah, this is my first year here after 12 years at Bowling Green State University. Um, Bless your heart. So where I, was, <laughs> where I was also teaching my higher education program. It, it was a wonderful experience and I learned a lot and grew a lot had great colleagues and great students across those dozen years that I was there. It was time for transition, life transition, and to explore. I felt the pull to do something different and, and be able to center myself, my own needs and wants in, in a lot of ways, in a way in a way that I had not been able to do before. Yeah, that's, that's a quick intro. Thank you. And so, mm-hmm. you know, something that we're very, very passionate about right now is Black Panther um, for a variety of different reasons. It's um, a blockbuster hit. Uh, there's representation. Some things weren't mm-hmm. done as well as they could have been, but other things were phenomenally done. So what assessments do you have of Black Panther as a film? Use it as a piece, like icon piece in a way at this point. It's a piece of art, too. Yes. Yeah. It's a phenomenal piece of art. I mean, from... The visuals for the colors, there will be spoilers here. So if they need to like put the thing on mute till um, you come back in a couple minutes. Um, <laughs> I give you one more week. If you haven't seen it in one week, then I don't feel bad for you. I'm like, look, it's been a weekend and it was a holiday weekend at that. So I'm going to need y'all to just have gotten your life together by now. Um, he breaks down the fight scene in the club. It was just amazing to see him. And, and he said something I hadn't noticed before. Um, about the color story that he was working yes. with in that, the, right? The mm-hmm. red, black, and green. Mm-hmm. Yep. The Pan-African um, film, yes. It was just visually stunning. It, the sound and music were stunning. The people were stunning. I mean, just to see beautiful black people, right? Brown skin, dark skin, black people that were beautiful and presented as beautiful, which is not something we often see in Hollywood movies was amazing. Do I have critiques? Absolutely, you know, because mm-hmm. nothing is perfect. And I think if we can't critique the work that we produce, then what are we doing, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I go back to James Baldwin's quote, you know, even though he was talking about the U.S., but you critique what you love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you, and fiercely what you love dearly. I think that's, that ought to apply to Black art as well, you know. And it's from can, a place of love, right? Yeah. Place of love. It's one of the major critiques I have, and, and perhaps right now it's the only one that sticks out in my mind, really, is that in this African society, this, this Wakandan nation that is um, that was never colonized, that was never sort of like subjected to white Euro Christo hegemony, that in that space there is no deliberately apparent queer and or trans people. Mm. which is particularly in like in the spiritual realm of the film, um, those who were sort of the caretakers of spirit, which is not 
really consistent with what we know about several of traditional indigenous African societies pre-colonialism, right? Um, the erasure of those peoples and the subjugation and oppression of queer and trans people really is a product of Euro-Christo hegemony, right? And so the fact that there was none and what I heard, you know, heard a rumor that there was supposed to be a scene that alluded to a lesbian romance, you know, between Okoye and Kaminandora um, Milaje, and that it was removed. You know, it's like, really? And it, it's not like it was some long scene. It was like a glance or something, you know, from what I read. And so that, that to me is problematic, you know, that even in this amazing display of Black strength, Black beauty, and Pan-Africanism, that queer and trans people are still absent and invisible, um, that I am still absent and invisible as a queer and trans person. And I can't look at that film and see me anywhere. I'm still, there are still Black people who look at that film and don't see them. Mm. In the midst of all the Black people who are looking at that film and do, and it's like, come on, what are we doing? You know, why do we continue to submit you know, to these illogics of uh, queer and trans erasure within Black communities. That's like the major critique I have that really sticks out to me. There, you know, I was talking with uh, Ken, trans Ken, last weekend, who, you know, I really appreciate their perspective that they were like, you know, well, they were saying that they read Zuri as a queer character in a lot of ways. Um, never, you never see him with anyone who never you know, see any kind of engagement of him with anyone, mm-hmm. you know, and so if we think of ace and aromantic, perhaps, perhaps there was that happening with him, but that, so when we got to do all that kind of work that you about to say, to that's, create, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all that is just like, nah, man, come on, can we get to the point where we get it flat out? I loved the strength and power of Black women mm-hmm. um, in this film, you know, that not waiting for anyone to come rescue um, but also walking that very fine line between Black woman as superhero, right, and, and the narrative of the strong Black woman versus just being able to show up the positivity of the strength. And I think that's a very fine line to walk, you know, because we as a people are, I think, very prone to be ready to contrast to the discourse around white femininity as being, you know, damsels in distress and needing rescue and and all that stuff that we see white feminism pushing back against, right? Um, But I think we're too quick to to also be like, Black women can do everything. and that might be another critique, you know, of the film that, that there's, it, it, maybe it crosses that line. You, you see, though, multifaceted Black women. I really think that there are Black women that are, they're not just tropes for, you know, the strong Black women, woman kind of narrative. You see several different kinds of Black women who handle things and think through things very differently. Um, and I really appreciate that. But yeah, it was it was amazing. I love loved it. Loved it. I'm going to see it for the third time tonight. Yes. Um. yes. <laughs> I just you know, and when it comes to even watching films, I have a hard time. Like I will pay attention to the plot, but most of the time, uh, my focus is on the colors. For example, I'm looking at costumes. I'm looking at um, if they're they're using the right lighting for different skin tones. Like I can't help it. I'm looking at the scenery. Oh. 
Uh, and so that's what I took in the first time. And then the second time I actually paid attention to some of the things that were actually happening in the moment, in the plot, listening harder to the conversations. The third time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just eating popcorn. It's, it's so, layered, right? It's, yeah. It's, I, the first time I thought I was so dumbstruck by many of the same things some of you are talking about, the scenes, the waterfall scenes, mm -hmm. the presentation of ritual, the, the colors, the vibrancy, the photography. I really do think, and I said this to someone before, and I'm just, I'm going to say it here. And so if it happens, you heard it here first. That's right. I really believe this could be the first Marvel movie that is, that gets nominated for several Academy Awards. Absolutely. That's costume because design, production design, cinematography. Absolutely. That soundtrack, though. <laughs> and if it doesn't, then it's like, really, y'all, we've always known Hollywood has had a problem with blackness and unable to handle blackness. If Marvel gets shut out and if this movie, if Black Panther gets shut out and ignored and um, nominations for the 2019 Academy Awards, I'm going to be like, you know, yeah, it's one more example. Right. We've had already okay. many. Yes. I was like, if we do that, <laughs> it was almost the perfect film in so many ways. Yeah. The plot, the story, it was just really well told. I think in, in many ways. Yeah. That, that's my first blush on the movie. And I don't know if you wanted to get into the other thing you brought up about Black Panther versus his cousin. Yeah. So I hear people like, and I do, I, first of all, I refuse to call Eric Killmonger. That's right. Um, think, and the reason why I don't is, you know, some big proponent of, in, in many ways, with the exception of when it comes to trans people and self-determination around transness and identity and naming that I'm going to call you what your mama called you or what your daddy called you. Um, not a name that got put on you as you were engaged in service for colonialism and genocidal murder and all of, you know, the rhetoric of, you know, neo-colonial capitalism. I'm not in the military industrial complex. I'm not going to reify that renaming of him you know i get it that he's he's the bad guy you know and bad guys have you know like claw and you know they have these names but i'm not gonna call him that because i don't feel like that's the essence of who he was and his surrendering to that identity is i think part of where it's not where his problems and pain start but it certainly helps to accelerate yeah it's where it manifests yeah Right, right, yeah. exactly. Like he was, fit, he was used as a tool for empire, and then became, and then took those lessons. You know, so there's a line in the movie where Ross is like, "Well, he's doing what he was trained to do. This is what he was trained to do." And I think people miss that. So when they talk about like, "Oh yeah, that's black radicalism," I'm like, "Really? Is it?" Because he did what the white colonizer, which is one of my favorite lines in the film, was <laughs> uh, a bratty teenager. It is amazing. So he's doing what he was trained to do by white, by white empire. And you want to call that black radicalism? I don't think so. And black radicalism needs not to be rooted in pain and agony, which is what all of what we see come out of Eric in the movie, in my opinion, is rooted in abandonment, in rejection, 
and grief and the pain and agony that result from that. This is somebody who was broken early because he was left behind by the very people who should have embraced him as family. And so, well, on, of course. This, what did you expect happening? And this is where I appreciate T'Challa, even though he never acknowledged this to Eric himself, when T'Challa is like, this is a monster of our creation. We did this. We helped to produce this. We can't be up here like, you know, he's some holy evil character. And I think that's where, you know, the difference between Claw and Eric comes through. You know, Claw is just like evil. I mean, he's the classic Marvel superhero villain, right? Um, Eric is not. Eric is much more complicated than that. And that final scene with Eric when T'Challa takes him to see the the sunset, sunrise, I've lost track of where they were in the day. Um, but I think it's at this point, I think it's sunset. And he gets to see this, this, this thing that Eric's father told him, right, about way back at the beginning of the film, we see his father tell him about the, the beauty of the Wakandan sunset and um, and whatnot. And so T'Challa takes him there and T'Challa says to him, he has like this moment you see in T'Challa's face and he looks at Eric and he says, you know, you could still be healed. Hmm. And Eric rejects that. And it's, it, I didn't catch this till the second time, right? <laughs> but I saw the film. Because in my mind, the second time I was like, damn. That, that there was perhaps underneath, there's two layers to that physical healing, but also possibly spiritual and emotional healing that Eric was desperately in need of, but Eric rejected because he'd rather hold on to that pain, that he couldn't imagine a healing. He right. could not envision a healing. Because he got so comfortable in the pain. pain. Yeah. Right. I'm comfortable in this pain because I've gotten used to this and this is all I have ever known. Right. And I don't know what life looks like without this pain. So even though that last line he utters before he basically commits suicide is powerful as shit. And underneath that is also this rejection of seeing something else with your people. Because the thing is, he, he assumes, and T'Challa never corrects him, either, by the way. He just lets it ride. But Eric assumes that if I'm healed, I'm going to end up in prison mm -hmm. for the rest of my life. And no one ever said that that was going to be the outcome. No one ever says that. No one ever says even to his father, right, at the beginning when, you know, his, his brother is like, you know, you about to go, the first Black Panther, you about to go. Um, you need to come back home. There's no specificity around what coming back home looks like. Mm -hmm. The fear of what coming back home might look like is what leads to that whole chain of events that happens in the apartment, right? Um, and it's a similar thing, you know, this mistrust of healing. And I really think when we think about Black masculinity and the, and the toxicity of um, of much of black masculinity and particularly the hetero black masculinity within the community that that mistrust of healing um, that inability to see what healing looks like 
um, outside of bondage, I think is it speaks to one of the one of the issues that as a community we're still wrestling with. I see, you know, I've heard people contrast it as black radicalism versus black liberalism, and I think that's a real false dichotomy that's really superficial. It's very simple. It's very um, simple, simplistic. Yeah, it's a black nationalism, Eric. I like sees, to say Eric. Yeah, I'm saying I'm like I refuse to call him Kilmer, <laughs> but. <laughs> It's, it's a black nationalism that seeks, it's sort of like the hotep that seeks to take over, which is not necessarily liberationist, right? It's not necessarily liberation that Eric is going for. Eric's going for takeover. Eric's going for vengeance. Eric's going for payback. That's not a black liberation philosophy. Teach to people. Um, and Teach I to people. Don't think that's really true to a black radicalism either, you right. know. But it is that hotep version of black nationalism that we see a lot um, happening, versus a black isolationism in what's been the Wakandan tradition has been black isolationism. We cool. We ain't gonna get no. We ain't gonna deal with the rest of that out there because there's some other people's problems. We cool. We just gonna stay here. Right, and not get ourselves involved in that mess because also we don't trust involvement. We don't trust what it would look like to share resources because we know how Europe underdeveloped Africa. Hello, Walter Rodney. And so, why would we trust that? But then, seeing, I think Nakia was a big part of this with T'Challa. Like, look, we have a responsibility, we could help. You know, we could help. We have things to teach, which to me is the whole scene at the UN, um, at the end, uh, which I love the fact that it was no longer headquarters in the U.S. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> uh, I was like, yes, finally. Um, but this, this notion of, you know, wise men build bridges, fools seek to build walls. There was so much elegant shade in this movie. It was amazing. <laughs> I love every line of it. Um, guns are so primitive. I mean, they're so, <laughs> but at that, you know, in that end where he's like, we could teach you, we have something to teach. And the rejection of that because of the presumption, what are you talking about? Your third world country. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that presumed incompetence again, you know, that, you know, refusal to be able to see black people as anything other than less than yeah that's highlighted also in the comics too Uh, even from the 60s when they had these flying these flying saucers in the comics that they would ask like where who did you steal this from this couldn't possibly have come right the idea even the mind can even think that this could come from african country right you know the same way you got people who are going out of their freaking way to to say that nah egyptians didn't build the pyramids what (laughs) come on like you are reaching reaching to try to prevent from acknowledging black excellence and how it has shown up continually time and time and time and time and time again throughout history into the present and into the future, right? I mean, you, that, and but that to me is the dichotomy. Hotep black nationalism is <laughs> a, you know, a black isolationism that the black isolationism gets transformed at the end. Um, where it's like, nah, we we can do something. There is a way, you know, as T'Challa says in Nakia, there is a way perhaps for us to integrate your calling with 
um, Wakandan tradition and Wakandan philosophy, right? And so there's this recognition that tradition, um, and that's one of the things Ryan Coogler was talking about, this, that the, he was constantly playing with this dichotomy of tradition versus innovation and how Nakia really represents innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do we use tradition to innovate in a different way. Mm. Um, and so how do we marry those two together, which is symbolized in lots of different ways throughout the film, not just in the relationship between Tal and Nakia. Yeah, so I really think that's powerful. I really think there's a lot of power in that. Um, and it reminds me of, you know, the blog post I wrote, I think January of last year, um, sort of wrestling with the family sweet potato pie recipe, you know, that I really couldn't eat and enjoy because of food allergies that I've developed over time. And finally, you know, and, and feeling some kind of way about leaving that tradition to, to innovate, right? So in really seeing it as an either or, you know, I can't, I can't if I innovate this recipe, I, I'm not cleaving to this tradition anymore. And, is, and that's an abandonment. And that's a it could be seen as a rejection to finally this Christmas or at the end of the year. So in January, that's where it was. And by December, I was like, you know what? I can marry these two things together and ended up innovating the recipe in a way that it still held that home, that tradition, while, while bringing in different ingredients to make it something that I could eat and that others would also enjoy. You know, so... You know, my son, who's picky and does not, like, eat everything, but he'll try just about anything I make at least once before he nice. says, nah. Um, right. It's appreciate <laughs> that. I've gotten, I've, I've, I've kind of ruined him, though, because he won't eat anybody else's mac and cheese. That's great. Uh, I love that. Mine. That little. I know where he's coming from. That, that selfishness <laughs> that you have. Like, you, I don't want my daughter thinking other people's food is good. Like. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I felt my grandmother, Lucille, in the kitchen with me as I'm like hand rolling out like for real pie crust as I am like mixing, using instead of egg, using flaxseed, flaxseed and water combination mm. as a binder as I'm using, you know, and crushing mandarin oranges into the mix which I mixed by hand, not even using a blender, but really went back old school and mixed the entire thing by hand mm. um, with a wooden spoon, mm-hmm. right? It's, I mean, it, it was, and I didn't set out to be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this real old school traditional style. That's just what happened. That's just how I began to flow. Um, and I didn't fight it. I just went with it. And it was at the end, I was like, dang, I didn't use not a single electric appliance other than the oven to make this pie and so again sort of this marriage of tradition innovation yeah, that it is possible it is possible so yeah so that that's black Panther for me i can't <laughs> wait for wakanda tonight it's gonna be lit <laughs> well i mean and everybody's trying to get flights to wakanda but I don't know right. if you've seen, yeah, everybody's trying to get a flight. <laughs> I, I'm wondering, have you been on Facebook lately? Um, there's that one little, uh, I think it's a thread or it's an article about, you know, who's being voted off of Wakanda, R. Kelly's included. Yeah, I voted <laughs> off Juanita Bynum. I did. <laughs> Who are you voting off? Who's not invited? Wow. Who's banned? You know, we really need to be mindful 
of the ways that we hold on to black folk, particularly problematic black men, toxic black men, racist black men, regardless of that, out of some sense of um, duty and loyalty, again, because of fear of what it would mean to to let that go in terms of acknowledging, yeah, there, there is a serious, significant history and sometimes a present, um, but much more of a significant history of Black men who ended up lynched because of false accusations of rape made by white women. And there's like, okay, that's not what's happening here. Let's Can we look at the facts? <laughs> I mean, when are we going to believe our black women? Right. That, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so I'm not in favor of everybody getting to come. Uh, <laughs> it's that question of is healing for everybody, is healing possible for everybody? And are you coming to get healed? Are what you what are your intentions, healing? right? Yeah. Exactly. What are your intentions? Like, you just going to come here and keep doing what you've been doing? Nah, nah. Oh, man. That, that ain't it. You stay out here. <laughs> <laughs> stay out. So, so, so DL, talk talk to us about what brings you joy. What brings you joy outside of the academy? Black Panther, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, you know, my son, my son brings me joy. He's in his first year in college right now, and just um, and I'm so proud of him and who he's becoming and how I see him developing. Um, away from home. That there's joy, absolutely joy. I love to see you y'all's know, relationship think, on Twitter. I just love, I love that. <laughs> he's, he's pretty sweet um, most of the time, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's still a parent-child relationship, but I think we have a really good one and really positive and affirming one. And so um, he gives me a lot of joy. He makes me laugh. Joy outside of the academy is also in fellowshipping with trans kin. You know, I was just at the University of North Texas in Denton, um, had the opportunity to have dinner with some trans kin. You know, yes, white trans kin, but critically conscious white trans people. And we just talked and shared. It was just the three of us. And there were supposed to be more people there, but, you know, other folks ended up having other obligations they had to attend to. And so it just ended up being the three of us. It, there was such, it was such a beautiful space of openness and it, it was amazing and so as I think about other trans kin um, including trans kin of color black trans kin where it's like when I can get in those, into those spaces with them there's there's joy and there's peace where I can let down guards where I don't have to be on the defensive um, where I can just be and I think that to me is what joy is in my Am I able to just be um, all of who I am in the space where I am? And when I can answer that question, yes, there is joy there. And so sometimes that happens in the academy too, but it's rare. Usually it's it's having to step outside of that, to step apart. Um, Even though many of the people who I have that joy, those joyful spaces with, work in the academy, mm-hmm. right? But there's something about, you know, engaging and being in the metrics and engaging in sort of the academic life that I think sometimes makes finding joyful spaces rare. Um, as Davina Cooper, I have been reminded of over and over again lately, um, like in the last couple of days, her book, Everyday Utopias, don't often find their place in academic life. And I think that's because of, of the structures and systems under which the academy developed, particularly in the U.S. 
and in Europe and that it still operates under, you know, um, particularly in the United States, um, the context that I'm most familiar with in terms of neo-capital liberalism, um, heteropatriarchy, heteropatriarchy, the white supremacy, all of those things end up encroaching, um, not just encroaching on the academy as though if we, you know, if those things were gone, the academy would be okay. No, the academy is the result of exactly. all of those things. Exactly, yeah. Um, and so we can't separate that from the academy. I mean, it, it really is, um, it is the tradition and the system and structure of the academy. And so, you know, reform is not, it's not about reform. It's about, so how do we dismantle and remake um, in many ways? And there are people who are doing that within sectors in the academy. And, but it, it, it's moments, it's flashes, it's being able to do that in a, within a conference session space, right? Um, that then is over <laughs> once the session is done or once the conference is done. Um, well, we have one more question before we go to speed round, and it's actually related <laughs> to something you were just talking about. I think a lot of folks are looking to the Academy to validate who they are and their existence. Um, and I think that's <laughs> leading to some tensions in, in our work and in our ability to be collegial with one another. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about any advice you could offer to those lacking some professional confidence and how that how maybe those folk could try to work to disconnect the systems at play, which are kind of invalidating or leading to those feelings of invalidation, while also, mm-hmm. you know, still being true to who they are. So, mm. <laughs> I think, first of all, if, if your sense of self, self-esteem, identity is wrapped up in the academy, you're going to be sorry person. You're going to be like, sorry about it, not you're a sorry person. You're going to be sorry about that because it's, it's not going to happen, particularly not for those of us with minoritized identities um, and even less so if there are multiple minoritized identities. The academy is not or is intentionally designed to not provide that sort of um, self-efficacy and validation affirmation that you cannot get that from the academy. And if that's the place where you're looking for it from, you're going to have your feelings hurt. And so to the extent that we can convince people to locate those spaces of affirmation outside of academic structures, I think we need to do that. You know, uh, when I was at BG, I taught my last two years there, I taught our dissertation seminar. And one of the things I would say is that, you know, in walking through the sort of the process, like so here's the logistical process of finishing the degree program. There, I would always say at the end, earning your doctorate, like becoming a doctor does not make you somebody. And if you're not somebody before you earn that doctorate, you won't be somebody afterwards. Mm-hmm. If you're not, before you get tenure, you're not going to be somebody after. If you're not somebody before you become a full professor, you're not going to be somebody after. Those marks of hierarchy and professional status are not the engines or avenues of self-validation. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to find affirmation and validation in your work from outside of those external markers um, that mean a lot for within a capitalist, capitalistic patriarchal hierarchy. 
um, where they mean very, very little beyond that. They mean almost nothing really beyond that, and particularly not to the community from which we come. I find affirmation and validation from my mom who will like, who reads everything I write, like straight up. And, <laughs> and it's like, wow, that was a really deep thinking. Wow, I'm thinking differently about this thing now because of what you've written. Wow, this is really good work. Um, my mother, who didn't have the opportunity to go to college, complete college, she had to drop out halfway through her first semester at Hunter College in New York to help her mother take care of her younger brother. Um, and she was not one of the oldest of the six kids in the family at that time. Um, she was the next oldest from this brother that she was asked to, to care for. So she never got to go to college. But college is not what makes you smart. Intelligence is not measured by whether you go to college or not. Intelligence is measured by your capacity to use your mind in increasingly complex ways, which can be developed and is developed and happens outside of academic spaces and outside of academic life. And so validation and affirmation for me, you know, is really about, so how are people you are able to use the work to transform their lives? Whether or not I get the academic accolades and promotions and whatnot, because if that prior work isn't happening, then none of this other stuff matters, mm-hmm. you know? I'm compromised who I am for some external measure of validation that's real suspect, that could go away at any moment. Who you got to know who you are outside of that thing. And if there's no other place that you can see that coming from, then again, I, I think there there's a healing that needs to happen there. There's some deep introspection that needs to happen there about why that is. Who are you cut off from? What relationships do you need to heal in order to be able to get back into a space where you can receive and give affirmation and validation outside of these external metrics of promotion and hierarchy and status? You know what I mean? Absolutely. I hope y'all hope y'all were listening to those gems and and just advice to really think about how do we personally recenter, right? Thank you for yeah. for dropping those gems because they were reminders for me, right, in my current and where I'm sitting and trying to figure out and navigate. So thank mm-hmm. you. Our last little um, component of our time with you, we wanted to do this quick little speed round. So the first thing that comes in your mind of the two options is is if you could share, that's what you go with. Okay. okay. All right. All right. So sneakers or loafers? Sneakers or loafers? Mm-hmm. Loafers. The beach or the city? Ooh, man. That's hard. Um, the beach. I already know the answer to this. Facebook yeah. or Twitter? <laughs> Twitter. Uh, Twitter. <laughs> Are you a hugger or non-hugger? I'm a hugger. I am. Michelle or Barack? Michelle all day. (laughs) (laughs) As completely problematic as Barack is, Mm -hmm. but so beautiful in terms of spirit. I love her. (laughs) (laughs) I want to go shopping with her. Michelle, Michelle, if you're listening, let's go shopping. Of problematic, we're not on display because that wasn't her role. Mm-hmm. So I think the way we got to keep Michelle as almost iconic and therefore not as real 
as we had to contend with Barack, um, which is necessarily fair to Michelle, you know, in a lot of ways. But, you know, if I'm, you're going to give me the choice, I'm going to say Michelle every time. Yeah. But that's not necessarily grounded in a actual familiarity, knowledge of the fullness of who Michelle is and how she thinks about things. Because we didn't get the opportunity to see that, yeah. except in Flash. Okoye or Nakia? Okoye! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for all your time today, DL. We really, really, really appreciate you. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully we can have you come back because we do really, truly appreciate you and um, love you. And the wisdom, like you just have so much, just so much wisdom. Thank you. So our last segment that we like to spend a little time on is a segment called Problematic Tea. So uh, each week we'll come up with something that is either annoying, problematic, or needs to be addressed. And for us this week, um, what's problematic is people that don't know how to group chat appropriately. Gosh. Group chat etiquette. Can we talk about that? Please. Etiquette rule number one that is oftentimes broken uh, by the group chat offenders is if we have had a conversation in a group chat, you know, three or more people, and you were not you were not available, you were not around, you were not engaged in the conversation, and we had that conversation at 9 a.m., do not jump in and start answering questions and following up with the conversation at 10 p.m. that night. Oh, my bad. That is me. <laughs> Shana, you can't be offended. That's me. Oh, yeah. oh wait. Oh. Rule number one. It it, it is always the people that jump in. What's offensive about that? What's that? Because the conversation is over. (laughs) I have had that conversation over coffee, and now you want me to have that conversation while I'm laying in the bed ready for bed. No, we have already had this conversation. We're not about to revisit. And people will jump in, answer questions. Uh That question is long gone. Oh, my bad. (laughs) You're late. You're late. I was already ready to jump on some people, but I got to stop here. The other thing is watching something on group chat. So maybe you're watching the Grammys, the award show, or maybe those of us that watch Real Housewives of Atlanta. And we're talking about the show in the group chat at the time. Don't come Tuesday afternoon when you are on your DVR and catching up on TV, engaging in the conversation (laughs) that we've already had about that show. You're late. People got work. People got to work. I agree. But it don't need to be in the group chat. What if they were drunk? Don't need to be in the group chat. What if they were at the show? Uh-uh. What if uh-uh. they took their phone? What's your group chat etiquette? Let them know. Mm, I can't stand it when people... Oh, I was about to cuss. Oh, when people... Um, I, I, I said what I said. I don't need to repeat myself. Actually, people out there, one of my biggest pet peeves, I don't like to repeat myself. I said what I said the first time. Sometimes I said the second time. Just make sure you're clear on what I said because I know as a woman of color, you didn't hear me the first time. Maybe you didn't hear me the second time, but don't make me repeat myself. And it's in text. So if I answered all the questions I thought you would ask me before you got the chance to ask me the questions, scroll up. Just just scroll up. You Scroll up. Per my, per my previous message. 
I don't even do that. I screenshot what the hell I said. (laughs) (laughs) I answered your question. That's another level of petty. I like that petty. I like that level of petty. Well, someone, okay, not to call, well, whatever. They're never going to listen to this. Not to call some people out, but some of my friends from home, they want me to come home and visit uh, Detroit. And so I was like, okay, cool. What, when should we come? This was in October, 2017. They came back today texting me talking about so what's those dates and i said i screenshot everything i said i told them everything that mattered and all my availability and they still they couldn't take their lazy asses five seconds to scroll up and say oh june works so that bothers me a lot so sorry my other one okay group chat etiquette okay if you are engaged in a group chat but you have a question for one person (laughs) in the chat that is not (laughs) pertaining to anyone else in the chat that's when you take your message and have a one-on-one conversation. That annoys me. Or what about when people RSVP to the whole group? <laughs> okay, can y'all email me separately? I'm just texting you out now because it's quick. Can you let me know separately? And they're like, I'm coming. First of all, don't send no invitation out oh. on no group type message. And I don't know everybody. I don't have everybody's number on the message. So then I'm like, who else is like, I'm trying to figure out who, who whose number is this? I'm not I'm not about to respond to everybody because then I don't know who if they don't if I don't know who they are, I hope they don't know who I am. Like, why would you send out this long message of all these random numbers? My my bad. Oh, I'm <laughs> I'm about to change your life with the group. I, chat some, okay, that has happened. Okay, let me explain myself. Now, what happened was I just I you know, time and stuff. So I just hurry up and text everybody and I'm like, Well, it's a safe question. Whatever it is, how about that? Whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. it is, um, I think there's an appropriate there's something the appropriate, right? Yeah. It's like everybody can answer it real quick or something. Absolutely. You did that um, at Ash. Like we all yeah. wanna go to dinner, yeah. group chat. I trust you and your judgment of who these people are. So right. yeah, I'm gonna be there, I'm gonna respond. Yes, let's go. But there's some others but there's some other stuff. Thirty people on a group chat invitation to my birthday dinner at That's five right. o'clock. Like that no. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Okay. So something Charles and I did when we were getting married. Because we know people throw these things away, so I just didn't want to spend time yeah, on yeah. them. Um, you know, most folks, they'll send out, like, a nice little magnet, save the date, a little card, save the date. And uh, we had our website posted mm-hmm. with all the information they needed, in- including saving the date. And so I texted to people. I think that's appropriate. I th- and I also think for what you're, for what you, you did a destination wedding. Yeah. I think that's a different, I think, yes, that's appropriate. Okay. I'm, I'm just trying to figure out if I'm on my third strike. <laughs> you about to be with it? No, maybe not with this one. Okay, so, so this is one? like I I'm an offender of this one. Okay, the excessive use of gifs, I uh, or the inappropriate use of gifs. Uh, okay, so, so what makes like, it inappropriate? Send in like the sips tea gif when when you should really be laughing out loud gif. Okay, you know okay. like people are like I was like you just wanted to send a gif. You don't even know what, what you using yeah, this for, yeah. right? Like I'm like the gif king. Like I love a good GIF. I will have a whole conversation in GIF. I had to calm that down because people got annoyed with it. Um, but I have a whole folder on my phone full of GIFs for the appropriate emotion, for the appropriate <laughs> reaction, <laughs> for the appropriate side eye. I have a GIF for all. Oh no, I just use the app because I don't have enough memory. No, on my phone. no. See those go. So those get overused. I don't have enough memory on my phone. Oh okay. I don't. I can't save a folder of GIFs on my phone. <laughs> Does it bother you when people say GIF? <laughs> and you know why it bothers me? Because I did the research. <laughs> I did the research of the person who created it. Uh-huh. And they asked her, I think I believe it's a woman. Uh-huh. I asked her, how do you properly say this? And it's GIF. Well, no, I don't feel like I'm an offender here. I, I feel like I have an appropriate balance between words, GIFs, 
and emojis. I hate my phone because it knows I want to say fucking and it's always saying duckin' and stuff like that. So sometimes it's just easier to put a GIF. Uh-huh. And I like Joan the Scammer a lot. And I feel like everything that Joan does is appropriate. Joanne. So, uh-huh. Oh, yeah, Joanne. Uh-huh. I think it should be Joan. <laughs> You know, but I like Joanne the scammer a lot, and so yeah. I'm my my new that. my new fad of gifs is Cardi B. Oh, she, she has a reaction to every every emotion. Why is I here? <laughs> mm-hmm. That's my favorite one right now. Why he live his life like that? Is this how he live his uh-huh. life? <laughs> or the the one at the award the show? Ga- oh, the oh. All Star Game when she's in the popcorn. Oh no, you know, but the yeah. one that everybody's just like word. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, thank you um, for calling out what is problematic about uh, being in these group chats. I hope you all took some notes about your group chat etiquette and govern yourselves accordingly. All right. So we're going to go to jokes of the week. I have jokes. And I'm a little bit of a cornball um, to the extent that, like, I don't like to admit it. I do do think dad jokes are, are hilarious. And I secretly laugh at Charles's jokes, my husband's jokes, they're so bad. He's always punning somewhere. I do laugh on the inside, but I publicly shame him so I don't reveal my true self to people. Ooh. I do. Mm. I just look at him sometimes and I give him side eye out no, you loud. You give him shade, I'm I sure. I do. Mm. And my friends are like, Shauna, and I'm like, what? But they are funny. So I have some jokes. And so what we're going to do here is I'm going to tell some corny ass jokes. I'm going to see if I can get. <laughs> I'm going to see if I can get Cameron to laugh at them so he doesn't know what I'm coming at him with. You ready? I'm ready. A ham sandwich walks into a bar and orders a beer. Bartender says, sorry, we don't serve food here. That's funny. That's funny. Okay. What do you call a fish without eyes? Fish. Do it again. Do it again. Fish. Fish. <laughs> Fish. I can't with you. <clears throat> Why did the scarecrow win an award? Because she's outstanding in her field. <laughs> These are the corniest. And you're laughing. <laughs> I'm reading a book about anti gravity. It's impossible to put it down. <laughs> anti gravity. It's floating. <clears throat> okay, final can't, one. Can't put it down, huh? Can't put it down. Did you know the first French fries weren't actually cooked in France? They were cooked in Greece. I've heard that one. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably me. <laughs> All right. So I think I did a pretty good job here. You cackled. I'm let the people be the judge of that. Okay. If y'all cackled, email us. Like us on Facebook. Let us know what you think about my jokes. Share some of your own. Um, I think mine were funny. So now we're coming to an end. We are. We have enjoyed. I hope you've enjoyed. I hope you learned something from DL. Dr. DL Stewart was dropping mm, the mm. gems. So hopefully them. you took some of that. But we are going to continue this. We hope that you will come along for the journey and share the podcast with your friends. So Zora Neale Hurston reminds us that there are years that ask questions and years that answer. Our hope for you is that this year will bring forth all the answers you require to be successful and to fully step into yourself. Bless. Oh, that's a word. Thank you. Mm. Enjoy the rest of your week. <laughs> <laughs>